And we are live here streaming 8 a.m. Atlantic Daylight Time. It's the Thursday, Thursday's uh, topical trip. We're going to be talking about the Trinity, God in three persons. Is that a real thing? Is that something we see in the Bible? That's what we're going to be looking at. Stefan Maya with you. The Early Bird Podcast Sessions at itssouls.com is the website. And uh, I strongly encourage you to please stick around. You might find the uh, substance of the material being uh, created and provided to you uh, is beneficial to your spiritual walk on this earth. So uh, please consider subscribing to the channel, following, liking, sharing, comment, all that kind of good stuff. Everything involved with that. <laughs> Today's modern social media interactions that uh, grow, of course, the channel and um, the work that we're doing. So please consider doing that. You might not, you might not agree with everything, but hey, listen, uh, we can still get along. All right. We can talk about stuff. Even if we don't agree, maybe we can find uh, the truth together and both agree on that. That'll work, right? The Trinity, God in three persons, is that a real thing? A uh, great many religions say no, that there is, but, uh, you know, that that's not true. Many say that that's not true, and there's a lot of religions uh, that say that that's not true, such as, you know, Islam and uh, the Mormon religion, Jehovah's Witnesses, and uh, the Jewish religion and tradition, all those uh, religious locations or bodies of um, ritual and all that kind of good stuff, or bad stuff, I guess, uh, will say uh, this, that, and the other regarding the Trinity or God in three persons. They basically say that's just not a real thing. It's not true. Well, we're going to look at an article from our friends over at ApologeticsPress.org. We haven't done that in a little while, and uh, they've written a uh, very well-documented uh, piece of work regarding the Trinity. And so we're just going to follow along to the article. Again, I'll share my thoughts with their thoughts, their thoughts with mine, as we've done before. And we'll see how it goes from there. It's a very lengthy article, so we probably won't have time to get all of it done in one session. But we shall certainly set it off as a series, if necessary, and uh, get the information out there. Again, let's just be humble with the information. Let's be sincere. Let's be uh, able to entertain the thought that maybe we've been wrong regarding uh, the idea of God in three persons, one God in three persons, maybe... If we're quick to reject that, maybe we should just look inwardly and, you know, think, what do I got to lose? If I hear the evidence and it's it's compelling enough for me to believe, then why not believe? You know, if it's not, then again, just remain with your own accountable independence, which we all have, God-given free will, and uh, you meet God on your terms, all right? That's all there is to it. All I'm doing is being the mailman sharing the mail with you. And um, again, seeking hearts, find the truth. That's how that works. Humble seeking hearts, find the truth. That's what we're getting into. Okay. Let me put the article here on the screen before I do so. Just want to make sure the, uh, the live stream is active. Yes, it is. Excellent. All right. Apologeticspress.org is the website. The article title, The Trinity, written by our brother Kyle Butt, if I'm not mistaken. 
the Trinity. Yeah, Kyle Butt. All right. Article in brief. Quick brief to what we're going to be looking into regarding this article. Based upon the many references to deity in the Bible, one may correctly conclude that the concept of the Trinity is correct. In other words, that the one God of the Bible exists simultaneously in three personalities, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each partaking of the one divine nature. Now, please understand, of course, that a great many false religions drenched in idolatry believe in the Trinity. And just because false religions believe in the Trinity doesn't make the Trinity right or wrong. We, again, have to be honest and humble. There are a great many religions that deny the Trinity. I've mentioned a few of them. doesn't make it right or wrong. We need to seek the evidence. We need to look at a reasonable mind, have a reasonable mind, and uh, allow the information to penetrate our thoughts so that we can make an uh, educated decision on our position moving forward. Throughout the centuries, the nature of God has been at the center of many heated debates, most certainly. Entire councils have assembled to discuss whether God is composed of three personalities having one nature, whether Jesus is a part of the Godhead, how the Holy Spirit factors into the equation, and a host of similar questions. And may I add that, you know, some have lost their faith because they couldn't allow themselves to find the answers to these questions. And there I say, some questions need not be answered this side of eternity. I mean, let's just be real with it. There are things we need not know on this side of eternity. Our minds couldn't, may not even, our minds may not even be capable of understanding certain answers to certain questions. But anyways, let's keep going. The answers to these questions can have a far-reaching theological and practical consequence. It is the purpose of this article to prove the thesis that the Bible teaches that the Godhead is three personalities, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in one nature. This here from our brother Kyle Butt over at apologeticspress.org. And let us be honest and let us see if he most certainly has evidence to show. If you and I conclude at the end of this article that he has not proven anything, then we'll stick to what we believe, right? But if it does, then maybe we need to change. Is change such a bad thing? In a world drenched with the uh, idea that we're, change is uh, good, right? Well, maybe we need to change. All right, definitions. Important. Define the terms. As in all discussions dealing with a proper understanding of truth, an agreed-upon and acceptable, sufficiently pre uh, precise definition of the major terms must be set out in the beginning. Of course, this is what makes a formal debate that can be productive or fruitful. You have to define your terms. And you know that. If I go walking outside right now in the middle of my neighborhood screaming, I am gay. I'm so gay today. What do you think they're going to believe in our current over or <laughs> hyper-sexualized culture? What do you think they're going to think of me if I go parading up and down this street, most specifically during this month? Uh, they're not going to think I'm happy. I may think that. I may not have a clue what's going on. Maybe I think that the word gay still means happy, joyful. I'm gay. Oh, well, my neighbors are going to think otherwise. So it's important we define terms, right? Yeah, okay. So in defining terms, 
point number or bullet point number one, Godhead or divinity. A description of the totality, both of nature and personality, of the supernatural creator of the world. Bullet point number two, nature. Quote, the inherent character or basic constitution of a person or thing, essence. Bullet point number three, personality. A recognizable, distinct entity that has mind and desire, as described by Merriam-Webster. Quote, the complex, the complex of characteristics that distinguishes an individual. The totality of an individual's behavioral and emotional characteristics. A set of distinctive traits and characteristics. All right. We've got to stick to that pattern there, that definition of terms, okay? While most words that will be discussed concerning the Trinity, such as personality, nature, and even divinity or Godhead, are fairly easy to define, that does not mean the aspects of God that they describe are easy to understand. Very good point. In fact, the Godhead is so complex and beyond human capability to fully understand that any attempt to discuss God quickly reveals the limitations of the human mind. We can never fully understand the Godhead. As the Apostle Paul so eloquently wrote about God's revelation of the gospel, quoting now from Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth and the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. We should not conclude, however, that nothing can be known of God. And that, sadly, is, of course, where a great many lead themselves off a cliff. Well, since there are some things we can't know of God, that must mean we can know nothing of God. Well, then God wrote it wrong when he said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. How can one be set free from the truth if it is an unattainable achievement or goal to that matter. Well, it is. We can. You can know the truth. Just because you don't know everything doesn't mean you can't know anything. <laughs> where, the, where that is, uh, we continue with the article, where that the, were that the case, to have any discussion about him, say his name, or even to identify the concept of God would be impossible for us. On the contrary, while we may not be able to understand fully all that the term, quote, nature of God entails, and while we may not be able to define the concept of a, quote, personality so that we comprehend everything about it, we can know enough about the terms, quote, Godhead, nature, and personality to say that the Godhead is three personalities in one nature. So we enter in this section saying the basic argument for the Trinity. In quick bullet form, the basic argument for the Trinity proceeds as follows. Bullet point number one. Premise one. The Bible teaches that the Godhead is one in nature. Remember what we said about nature? The inherent character of or basic constitution of a person or thing, essence? Okay. Premise two. The Bible teaches that God... The Father is one personality of the Godhead. Remember what we said about personality? A recognizable, distinct entity that has mind and desire, 
As described by Merriam-Webster, the complex of characteristics that distinguishes an individual, the totality of an individual's behavioral and emotional characteristics, a set of distinct traits and characteristics. Okay, so premise three. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is one personality of the Godhead. Premise four. The Bible teaches that Jesus, the Son, is one personality of the Godhead. Conclusion. Therefore, God is composed of three personalities in one nature. So we follow the article and the evidence it has to provide and the, reason, and the, and the reasoning that it holds. The Godhead is one in nature. The Godhead is one in nature. Before I do that, I'm going to take myself a drink of high-quality H2O. A bit dry this morning. Hmm. Have we thanked God for fresh running water? Cool, cold, fresh running water. <laughs> or as fresh as it can get in the city, I suppose. We buy the bottled water, the big bottle jugs. We have that little machine in the, in the kitchen there where you just press a button and cool, cool water comes out. You know, let's not take that for granted, I assure you. We need to thank God for uh, fresh water. Okay, the Godhead is one in nature. Various scriptures demonstrate that the Godhead is one in nature. One of the most well-known passages that relates this truth is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which states, I quote, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. A similar passage, of course, is found in Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6, which reads, quote, There is one body and one spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all, end quote. In addition, we have Malachi chapter 2, verse 10, which says, and I quote, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us, end quote? The fact that God is one is clearly stated in the Bible, and a true, of course, genuine Christian is not going to deny that. One God. Monotheistic. The clear statements of God's oneness lead some to deny that God is composed of three personalities, and that's where they find a cavity. That's where a cavity is found in their reasoning or in their thoughts. They can't get past that. They have a blind spot. Perhaps it's a log sticking out of their forehead, or perhaps it's just, again, um, ancestral tradition or lineage to a certain religious view or church. or uh, it, it doesn't matter. It, it, it's something in the way. There's something in the way. And uh, we need to open our minds to see that perhaps there's something more to it. So they suggest that if God is one, these who deny the three personalities of the Godhead, the one God, and they suggest that if God is one, then he cannot be three in any way. So his oneness excludes the possibility that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all God. I don't know if that's a... I mean... I'm one person. I am one man. But I know that I wear many hats. For instance, I know that I am a father to three children. 
I know that I am a husband to a faithful wife. I know that I am a son to a father. You know, I mean, does it mean that just because I am one body, one mind, one man, that I cannot have distinct, separate personalities? No, not in a <laughs> personality disorder. You know, um, I'm not fighting against another or switching into a psychopathic realm. But rather, I'm the same one man, one person, if you will, in uh, my bodily form. But I have various roles. I don't know. Maybe that's a poor illustration. I'm just reasoning with you. Call me out. It's fine. Maybe I don't know what I'm saying. That's okay. But to me, that kind of helped me make sense of it, right? So these that do not believe that, of course, suggests that it cannot be done. David, uh, uh, um, the article continuing now, as M. Davis wrote, quote, We have seen how that throughout the Bible, God is only described as being one being. So it is to the Bible we must turn. And when we do, we do not find any evidence to suggest that God is made up of three beings. This is what Miss. Uh, this is what M. Davis wrote, uh, right? So, let's see if that's the case. Thus, the critics of the doctrine of the Trinity do not differentiate between the concept of nature and that of personality. Hmm, interesting. This idea will be expanded upon in the section dealing with common objections. It is included here simply to set up the argument for God's oneness being in nature and not personality. Hmm. Okay. Let's keep reading. The Bible says that one God created us, Malachi 2.10. A closer look, however, at the creation of man shows that some type of multiplicity was involved. And that's true. I've read that numerous times, right? In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, it states, and I quote, Then God said, Let us, capital U, make man in our, capital O, image according to our, capital O, likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Again, that was Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Now that's objective, absolute language, grammar, and how it is revealed in the original language. Um, religious groups such as the Jehovah's Witnesses and... Uh, perhaps the Mormons, I think, or, or others, have since written their own Bible and have removed this kind of information, which is tragic because it leads a great many who are vulnerable, who are not well-versed or learned in Christianity uh, to be devoured, to be taken away by a lie, which is sad because those verses are in there. And that language is exactly as it reads, that we, you and I, can understand in the English translation. Let us make man in our image. How can, how can that work grammatically? I mean, I'm just reasoning with you, right? Okay, so the Hebrew language used in this passage cannot be definitively used to prove a multiplicity, but it is written in such a way that certainly allows for the one God to have some aspect of multiplicity or plurality. Yeah, 
at the very least, right? A better understanding of this plurality is gained by looking at the verses in the Bible that discuss the creation. In John chapter 1, verse 1, explains, and I quote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. End quote. Later in the first chapter of John, we learn that the word, quote, became flesh and dwelt among us, right? We, we learned that. Well, thus the word refers to Jesus, who was with God and was God and created all things along with the Father. John chapter 1, verse 14. We can see then that the oneness of the creator must allow for at least some aspect of God to have a multiplicity of something. I mean, if we're being honest with each other, I mean... Let's not drown out the possibility, right? I mean, it does seem to speak a language uh, facilitating the thought that, yeah, there seems to be a multiplicity here somehow. There's one God, you can't deny that, but there's something of a multiplicity within this one God. So in logical form, we could arrange the argument as follows. There is one God who created man. The concept of oneness either means that nothing about God can have any type of plurality or that some aspect of God is completely unified, but at least one other aspect of God can have multiplicity to it. Is that such a threatening idea? Well, it is for those who are rebelliously uh, or who have rebelliously dug their heels into their beliefs and are not going to entertain a free thinking mind. It cannot be the case that nothing about God can have any multiplicity since the Bible gives at least one aspect of God, the Father and the Son. That has multiplicity. Therefore, some aspect of God is completely unified, but at least one aspect of God can have and has multiplicity, if we're being honest with it, with it right? Once we determine logically that at least one aspect of God has to be one and completely unified without multiplicity, we need to identify what that concept is. We see several ideas that are applied to God in his in entirety, right? God is eternal from everlasting to everlasting. Psalm 90 verse 2, Deuteronomy 33 verse 27. God's eternal Eternality applies to the Father as well as to God the Son, as is evidenced from the fact that Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 describes the Messiah, parentheses, who is recognized in the New Testament as Jesus, as being called, quote, everlasting Father. The concept of eternality equally applies to the Spirit. As the Hebrews writer stated, quote, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. Since the concept of eternality equally applies to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then we have successfully determined that at least one aspect of God that is completely unified and applies equally to every aspect of God. Such qualities compose the nature or essence of being of God, or of the being of God, if you will. And while it is true that we cannot know or understand all the aspects of God's essence, 
we can compile a list of ideas or attributes that make up this unified whole that applies equally to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And a thought came to my mind, an illustration of sorts, that in my simple blue-collar everyday Joe kind of reasoning, um, you know, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, right? The bread, the cup. Well, it's one cup, and we all participate and uh, take, receive the cup. But yet the cup has a multiplicity for each individual Christian to consume. You know what I mean? The cup is not the plastic container that the substance is held in. The substance is the importance. The substance is the cup. God is the cup, but there seems to be a multiplicity there. I'm not saying there's thousands of them, but the Bible seems to be revealing at least three, and only three. The cup divided in three persons, or among three persons, to partake of the one cup. I don't know, just a thought that came to my mind again. May not make any sense to you. Maybe I don't know what I'm talking about, but anyways. So, bullet point one. God's essence is immutable or unchangeable. Psalm 103, verse 17, and Hebrews 13, verse 8. God's essence is morally perfect. Habakkuk 1, verse 13, and 1 Peter 2, verse 22. God's essence is founded on justice. Psalm 89, verse 14, and Matthew 23, 23. Bullet point next, God's essence is love. 1 John 4, 8. Of course, God is love. And bullet point last, God's essence is eternal. Psalm 90, verse 2, Deuteronomy 33, verse 27, and Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. The Bible provides as much a much more exhaustive list of the attributes of God's nature or essence. This short list is provided to make the point that all three personalities of God, in other words, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, share one unified nature that applies equally to all of them. The three personalities of God. Again, if you seek this article, you can find it over at apologeticspress.org. It was written in 2015 by our brother Kyle Butt. And you can go through that and take it much slower if necessary and look at the verses in uh, with a lot more detail. And uh, by all means, I encourage you to do that. I am sharing my thoughts and my studies throughout the decade plus alongside with this study from our brother Kyle Butt. So if you're seeking work that I have done, then you'd probably need to go to some archive videos or articles over at addedsouls.com. The three personalities of God moving forward. Having established the fact that God is one in essence or nature, we can move, or we can now move to detailing or to dealing with the idea that God is three personalities. The burden of this portion of the article will be to establish that the three personalities of God are God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We typically, for expediency's sake, say the first, second, and third persons of the Godhead, the first being the Father, the second being the Son, the third being the Spirit. For instance, we might say that the burning bush in the age of Moses 
was the second person of the Godhead, which would be the Christ. Anyways, we move forward. God the Father. The premise that one personality of the Godhead is the Father is one of the least disputed and easily proven concepts in this discussion. True. In fact, many people and religious groups consider the Father to be the only personality of God, parentheses which we will show is not the case. But very few who accept the Bible as the Word of God argue that God the Father is not God. This is the case because there are so many verses in the Bible that identify God in the personality of the Father. Let's examine a few of those. In 2 Peter 1.17, the text states that Jesus, quote, received from God the Father honor and glory, end quote. In Jude 1 is written to those, quote, who are called, sanctified by God the Father, end quote. When Jesus was instructing his disciples to pray, he taught them to say, quote, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, end quote, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, quote, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 11. As with other aspects of the argument, a much longer list could be compiled showing that the Bible refers to God the Father as being part of the Godhead. Thus, as our argument proceeds, we have now established that the Godhead has one unified nature and has at least one personality, namely, God the Father. And again, most will not argue with that one. God the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Because of the way many people view the term spirit, it has often been the case that the Holy Spirit is misidentified. Oh, so very true. A great many in the world who perhaps self-identify under the umbrella of Christendom would speak of the Holy Spirit as a thing, a an electrical current of sorts, or a... Um, unknown wind that has no definitive gender or personality, but rather just some kind of an emotion or whatnot. He is often referred to as an it. And some do not recognize the fact that he is a personality of the Godhead. The scriptures, however, are clear that the Holy Spirit is a personality of the Godhead in the same way as the Father and the Son. First, Recall that the Bible explains that the Spirit is eternal, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. That means that He is not a created being, but has always existed. That's the essence of eternity within the realm of deity. Always has, is, and will forevermore be. In argument, from, in argument form, we would say, God is the only being that is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal, therefore the Holy Spirit is God. In addition, we read that just as God knows all things, the Spirit does as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 states, quote, But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. End quote. 
The book of Acts contains a memorable story about two early Christians named Ananias and Sapphira. Ah, yes, right, that's right. These two sold a piece of property, right? Gave the money to the church, but lied about the price of the land. When the apostle Peter rebuked them for their sin, he said, quote, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to God. Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Now that's, you can't just erase that from the Bible. That's in there. Notice that Peter stated that by lying to the Holy Spirit, Ananias had lied to God, equating God and the Holy Spirit. In addition, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 says that the Christians there had participated in the, quote, sanctification of the Spirit. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, the Bible says, quote, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, end quote. Again, we see that the work of sanctifying the Christian is accomplished by God, but is attributed to the Holy Spirit. This line of reasoning can be extended to other aspects of God's action. In 2 Timothy, Paul states that, quote, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, chapter 3, verse 16. Peter explains that the scriptures were produced when, quote, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1, verse 21. When then can reason that God inspired the scriptures we, then, can reason that God inspired the scriptures and the Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures. Thus, the Holy Spirit is God. I mean, if we're logically following the, th the, the train of thought with what the scriptures are revealing, I don't know, man, what do you think? I'm always open-minded. Not enough that the brain falls out, but enough to be like, you know, sometimes just got to see it for what it is. Most times you do. All times maybe we should. <laughs> it is what it so clearly shows itself to be. If it, uh, you know, looks like a duck, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. Right? Once we establish that the Holy Spirit is God, we next need to show that he is a person, not simply a nebulous force, an abstract unknown, right? We have defined the word, quote, person as a recognizable, distinct entity that has mind and desire. The Bible paints a consistent picture that the Holy Spirit, like the Father, is a person. First, the scriptures state that the Holy Spirit can and has talked to people using language that those people can understand. In Acts chapter 8, verse 29, we read that, quote, the Spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. End quote. This was not a nebulous, impersonal force, but a recognizable voice used by a person to communicate his desire to, to a man named Philip, Philip the Evangelist. The Apostle Paul explained that, quote, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. End quote. That's from 1 Timothy 4.1. Once again, the Spirit speaks in understandable language. 
In Revelation, the text says that, quote, the spirit and the bride say, come. Chapter 22, verse 17. Only a person with a will and identity could offer such an invitation. In addition, consider that the Holy Spirit can be blasphemed. Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 and 32, lied to, Acts chapter 5, verse 3, insulted or despised, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, and grieved, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. The Holy Spirit is God and has all the traits of a person. We therefore conclude that the Father is one personality of God and the Holy Spirit is another personality of God proving that the one God has a multiplicity of personalities. Now we move on to God the Son. We've looked at God the Father. We've looked at God the Spirit. Now we look at God the Son. Before we do that, I take another drink of high-quality H2O. Mm. Yeah. All right. God the Son. <clears throat> In addition to the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Bible mentions another person who composes the Godhead, Jesus Christ the Son. In fact, the Bible mentions these three together. Would you know it? Matthew chapter 28 verse 19 quotes Jesus as saying that his followers should baptize disciples in the name of the, quote, Father, that's one, and of the Son, that's two, and of the Holy Spirit. That's three. Peter wrote that Christians were, quote, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. A straightforward reading of these passages seems to put the three on equal footing. Some have contended, however, that even though Jesus is the Son of God, parentheses, which the scriptures teach in numerous places, you can see Matthew chapter 14, verse 33, chapter 16, verse 16, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, Luke chapter 8, verse 28, John chapter 3, verse 16 to 18, and 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19. That does not mean he was equal to God or had slash has the same nature as God. Fred Pierce, who denies that Jesus is God, wrote, quote, But he is God's son because he has been begotten. The ruler is not God. He is the son of God, and he began to exist on the day he was begotten. Like all sons, he is preceded by his father. End quote. Some have contended that God created Jesus first, and then Jesus created everything else. Thus, they would argue that Jesus is not God, but only the Son of God, a creation of God, or an elevated angel, if you wish. Others would argue that Jesus was only a man and never claimed to be God or even an angel. The Bible, however, denies both of these positions and presents a thorough and consistent picture of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as God in nature and as a third personality of the Godhead. Consider the following three affirmations. Affirmation number one. Jesus, the Son, is referred to 
as God. The prophet Isaiah predicted that the Messiah would come in the form of a child. That Messiah was going to be known as, quote, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, end quote. That's from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Notice specifically that the coming child would be called Mighty God. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus was that child, the anointed Messiah, the son of David described in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And in John chapter 4, verse 25, the woman with whom Jesus talked at the well stated, quote, I know the Messiah is coming. To which, of course, Jesus responded, quote, I who speak to you am he. John chapter 4, verse 26. When we put the premises together, the argument looks like this. The Messiah is mighty God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the Messiah. Therefore, Jesus Christ is mighty God. Isn't that cool? In the first chapter of John, the text says, quote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John chapter 1, verse 1. Again, notice that the Word is called God. Just a few verses later, the text explains that the, quote, Word became flesh and dwelt among us, end quote, and that John, quote, testified of him. John chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. In John chapter 3, verse 22 through 36, the person John testified about is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Putting the pieces together, we arrive at the following argument. The Word is God. Jesus Christ, the Son, is the Word. Therefore, Jesus Christ, the Son, is God. The Apostle Thomas added his voice to this conclusion when he saw the wounds in Jesus' body and proclaimed to Jesus, quote, My Lord and my God. John chapter 20, verse 28. And that's something. Truly fascinating. All right, number two. Jesus, the Son, is worthy of and accepted worship. Jesus, the Son, is worthy of and accepted worship. Matthew wrote a detailed account of Jesus being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. During that temptation, the devil enticed Jesus to fall down and worship him. Jesus responded by saying, quote, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. That's in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus' argument went as follows. All people are morally bound to worship only one being, that is, God. The devil is not God. Therefore, no one should ever worship the devil. From this line of reasoning, it's clear that anyone who is faithful to God will not encourage the worship of any being other than God. We see this truth played out in a number of episodes in the Bible. In Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas were in the city of Lystra when they healed a crippled man. The residents of that city were so enamored with the two, they began to worship them. Paul and Barnabas rushed in among the crowd and tried to stop their worship, crying out, quote, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men with the same nature as you. Acts chapter 14, verse 15. This argument was similar to the one Jesus made. 
all people are morally bound to worship only one being, that is, God. Paul and Barnabas are not God. Therefore, no people should ever worship Paul and Barnabas. The same thought process is used in Revelation chapter 22, verses 6 through 9. In that passage, the Apostle John is introduced to an angel. And the Apostle, quote, fell down to worship before the feet of the angel, Revelation 22, 8. But the angel, this messenger, said to John, quote, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant. Worship God. Revelation 22.9. The messenger's argument can be laid out in the following way. God is the only being any person should worship. I, an angel, am not God. Therefore, no person should ever worship me. When we consider how Jesus responded to being worshipped, we can see that he readily accepted it as a proper response to his personality and power. On numerous occasions, the Bible records that people worshipped Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 14 verse 33 says that his disciples, quote, came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God, end quote. Jesus accepted the worship and did not rebuke them. In John chapter 9, verse 38, Jesus healed a man who had been born blind. Jesus then instructed the man to believe in the Son of God. The man responded by saying, quote, Lord, I believe. Then the text says, quote, and he worshipped him. You can see also Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, chapter 28, verse 9, and John chapter 20, verse 28. As we analyze this argument we see that Jesus said all people are morally bound to worship only God, and Jesus accepted worship as the proper attitude of people toward Him. Either Jesus violated Scripture and accepted worship contrary to the Bible's teaching, or could it possibly be that Jesus is God? Jesus never violated Scripture. Hebrews 4, verse 15, John 8, verse 46. Therefore, Jesus is God. Number three, Jesus the Son is equated with Jehovah. In the Hebrew Bible, the special name for God is called the Tetragrammaton. Tetragrammaton? Grammaton? Anyways, I'm probably not pronouncing that properly. You have to keep remembering, I'm a French person speaking English language, <laughs> trying to make sense of all these words. God is uh, the Tetragrammaton. It is composed of four Hebrew letters and is transliterated Jehovah or Yahweh. The actual pronun uh, pronunciation of the name has been lost since the original Hebrew did not have vowels. This name is used only to describe the eternal creator God of the universe. In Isaiah 6, the prophet records a time when he saw God in a vision. The angelic beings who stood around God's throne addressed God as Jehovah of hosts in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, and used the same name, the Tetragrammaton, in verse 5. There is no doubt that Isaiah was describing a vision of the eternal God. 
When we turn to the New Testament, we see the Apostle John describing this scene from Isaiah. John writes that although he, Jesus, quote, had done so many signs before them, they did not believe, John 12, verse 38. He then references Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, and says, quote, These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him, John chapter 12, verse 41. The fact that the pronoun him, H-I-M, in verse 41 is referring to Jesus is verified by the use of the pronoun to describe Jesus in verse 37 and verse 42. Thus, the argument can then be made as follows. Isaiah saw the glory of Jehovah God in Isaiah 6. John says that Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus and references the episode in Isaiah 6. Thus, John equates Jesus with Jehovah. Additionally, other passages reference Jesus as being Jehovah. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 explains that a messenger would be sent as the forerunner of the Messiah. This messenger would be, quote, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, who would, of course, quote, prepare the way of the Lord, Jehovah, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. The New Testament applies this prophecy to John the Baptizer in John chapter 1 verse 11 and declares that John prepared the way for Jesus, thus equating Jesus with Jehovah. Again, the argument is as follows. Isaiah said the messenger would prepare the way for Jehovah. John was the messenger Isaiah predicted. He prepared the way for Jesus. Thus, Jesus is equated with Jehovah. From these passages and the arguments they present, the Bible student is drawn to a concrete conclusion about Jesus the Son. Not only is Jesus directly called God, he accepted worship that is reserved only for God, and the holy name of Jehovah is applied to Jesus. Thus, Jesus is God. The idea that Jesus is a person who has a personality is undisputed. Therefore, Jesus is one personality of the Godhead. It just is what it is. We have now established that the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son are three personalities of the Godhead. And they are composed of one nature. Let us turn to some common objections to this conclusion. So we're going to be looking at some objections to the information that has been provided thus far. Let me just take a look at how deep that goes. It goes deep enough, or do we have enough time here? Yeah, we got enough time. You know what? We might just be able to finish this article. Excellent. Okay, and this article, friends, is again from our... Uh, from the uh, apologeticspress.org website. So here are some objections to that. Objection number one, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. You'll hear that often said, right? Well, the word is not even in the Bible. Well, the concept that the Godhead is three personalities, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in one nature is often summarized as presenting a triune God. The term triune denotes a trinity of personalities in one unified nature. The noun form of the adjective is trinity. The term trinity is used by the vast majority of Christians, 
and others who accept the thesis of this article. To describe the nature and personalities of God, that's why they use that for. One primary objection to the use of this word, and the conclusion that it is used to describe, is that the term is not even used in the Bible. For example, one critic of the idea of the Trinity wrote, But did you realize that even though it is a common assumption among many sincere religious people, the word Trinity does not appear anywhere in the Bible? In fact, the word Trinity did not come into common use as a religious term until centuries after the last book of the Bible was or were completed, long after the apostles of Christ were gone from the scene." End quote. Supposedly, because the Bible does not use the term Trinity to describe God, then the idea of a Trinity is an extra-biblical idea that was forced into the text. In truth, the objection that the term Trinity is not used in the Bible can be refute, uh, refuted by showing that there certainly are words used today that describe concepts in the Bible. But those words or terms are not in the text. For, for, for instance, the Bible never uses the term atheist or atheism, right? Can we argue from that fact that the Bible does not deal with the concept of a person who does not believe in God? Well, no. Since we can see the Psalm 14.1 stating, quote, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Our modern term atheism accurately describes a person who says there is no God, even though the term is not used in the text. In addition, the Bible never uses the word Sunday. Yet we use that word today to accurately describe the day the Bible calls, quote, the first day of the week, which came after the Sabbath. Incidentally, we use the word Saturday to describe the Sabbath, even though Saturday is never used in the Bible. These examples show the logical inconsistency of claiming that a concept is not thought, uh, taught in the Bible if the word we currently use to describe the concept is not in the Bible. That takes care of objection number one. Objection number two, if God is one, he cannot be three. Well, another often heard objection to the thesis is the idea that God, if God is one, there's no way he can be three. Those who, are, those who use this argument quote verses such as Deuteronomy 6, 4, which says the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6, which says that there is one God and Father of all. They argue that if God is one, as these verses say, then he cannot be three at the same time, because this would be a violation of the law of logic known as the law of contradiction. In responding to this argument, it's helpful to review what the law of contradiction actually says. Warren states the law as, quote, nothing can both have and not have a given characteristic or property in precisely the same respect, end quote. Another way to state the law is that nothing can both be something and not be that same thing at the same time, in the same way. The pertinent aspect of the law of contradiction as it relates to the Trinity discussion is the idea of a person or thing having a certain characteristic, quote, in precisely the same respect or, quote, in the same way. For instance, we could say that a person named Bob is very rich and very poor. While it seems contradictory at first, we could mean that he is physically and financially prosperous, but he is very shallow and spiritually poor. So, in one sense, he is rich, monetarily, and in another sense, he is poor, spiritually. Therefore, it can be true that he is both rich and poor at one and the same time. 
In the same way, God can both be one and three at the same time, precisely because the terms, quote, one and three apply to different aspects of God. When we use the word, quote, one, we are discussing God's eternal nature or essence. When we use the word three, we are describing the personalities of God, not his nature. Thus, it is important to understand that the Godhead is three personalities in one nature. This statement does not violate the law of contradiction and accords with what the Bible says. All right, objection number three. Jesus denied that he is God. Well, some who argue against the Trinity claim that Jesus did not view himself as God and on several occasions denied his deity. One of the passages most often to bolster this claim is Mark chapter 10, verse 17. In this passage, a wealthy young man ran to see Jesus and asked him, quote, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? End quote. And Jesus responded by saying, quote, Why do you call me good? No one is good but, the, but one, that is, God. End quote. According to the skeptical view, Jesus is denying that he is God. But a closer look at Jesus' comment reveals just the opposite to be the case. Exactly. Notice that Jesus never denies that he is the good teacher. He simply makes the comment that there is only one who is truly, go uh, truly good, and that is God. Basically, in my studies as well, Jesus was saying, I'm God. Thus, if the young man's statement is true, that Jesus is the good teacher, and it is, and there is only one who is good, and that is God, then Jesus is acknowledging his deity, not denying it. And of course, in my own personal studies, you can go to John chapter 5 as well, where we see Jesus speaking of his equality with, with God. Why would they try to murder him? It specifically says so in the text, John chapter 5, verse 18, I believe. You'd have to go look at it to be sure. But they were seeking to kill him because he was claiming to have equal status with God the Father. Anyways, a bit of my own studies into the mix here. As with all discussion of Scripture, it is important to look at what the text actually says and not what other people claim the text says. It's easy for someone to just tell you a thing, and then you run to me and say, Hey, you're this, that, and the other. You're guilty of this, that, and the other. For instance, the religious leaders of the day would speak to the crowds and say that Jesus is a blasphemer, that he's a devil, that he's a thief, that he's a deceiver. And then they'd run to Jesus and say, Hey, you've been lying to us. You're a deceiver and a thief and a blasphemer and a devil. And Jesus would simply say, Oh, really? Who told you that? Well, the Pharisees did. Oh, the Pharisees told you that I was a liar and a thief and a deceiver. Did they say that? Yeah, they said that. And you trust them? Well, of course I do. They're scholars. Oh, I see. So you can't think for yourself then. Someone's controlling your mind, my dear friend, and it ain't God. You know that. You know how that works. Paying attention yet? Conclusion. A discussion of the nature and personalities of God is important for several reasons. First, if God includes information about him in the Bible, then he must want humans to study and learn that information. Second, a misunderstanding of God's personalities could result in a spiritually catastrophic conclusion that is at odds with God's word. 
If a person misunderstands that Jesus is the eternal God on par with the Father and Spirit, that person may never grasp the significance of the fact that God in the flesh came to earth to die for his or her sins. Such a, mis such a misunderstanding may also cause that person to fail to honor Christ as the Bible commands. Jesus stated, quote, And all shall honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. John chapter 5, verse 23. Only if a person understands that the Son is God, just as the Father is God, can that person honor the Son, quote, just as he or she honors the Father. Thus, a discussion of the Trinity is necessary to sound Christian doctrine and practice. If a person approaches the sum of Scripture motivated by an earnest desire to know the truth about the Godhead, that person can, with complete confidence, infer from the biblical premises and implications that the Godhead is three personalities, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in one nature. Thank you so much, my dear friends, to uh, for joining us here in this episode discussion, a topical discussion. We were reading an article from our friends over at apologeticspress.org, the author of the article being our brother Kyle Butt. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know, man. What do you think? To me, again, every time I go through this, it 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 just seems to be quite clear. You know, and if we don't accept that, we start to pin verse against verse. You know, we start to put one against the other. We start to say, well, this verse says there is no personalities in God. There is no three personalities in God. Well, there's a verse that says there is. So are you going to pin one verse against the other? Or could it be that both are true? That there is one God in three persons. Important information for us, I suppose, to look into. I appreciate your kind attention. Again, you can disagree with me all you want. It's not between you and I, really. It's what does the Bible say? What does God say? You don't have to. <laughs> At the end of it, I'm just a mailman. I'm just delivering the letter. Uh, but I do appreciate your kind attention. If you find this kind of material uh, uh, beneficial to your life, please consider subscribing, following, liking, sharing, rumble, comment, all that kind of good stuff. And if you are a member of the Lord's Church, a legal citizen of the church Jesus built, and you know the language I am speaking, please consider supporting it. Sign up to addedsouls.locals.com today. It's free to do so, and therein you can choose to support. No amount is too small, no amount is too big, and it goes towards the Added Souls ministry, proclaiming the gospel wherever the Maya family may roam, or wherever the Added Souls ministry is found, if you will. It is fruitful because of your love and compassion, your faith, and your willingness to support with random monetary donations during the month or monthly support going through. Uh, we've recorded, witnessed and recorded baptisms, renewals, and reinforcement of the saints. The devil hates that. The devil wants to get rid of that, but we'll keep moving forward. Remain focused. Remain positive. Look at the show notes for other opportunities to help and support you can reach out to me at itsouls at gmail.com if you wish to have a conversation. I'm all for uh, conversation, being transparent, everything in report and update. Good stuff. You are loved. You are appreciated. You have purpose. 
God is good. Lord willing, uh, what are we today? Thursday? We might not see each other tomorrow morning. I still have to wait and see. There's some stuff going on that I may not be able to be here. But our Fridays are usually the socio-political the, uh, <clears throat> discussions where we talk about current affairs and stuff like that. That's usually what we keep our Fridays for. You can look at the itinerary in the show notes to see Monday through Friday and each day what we, we have a discussion on. That good? All right, my friends. Peace out. <laughs>